A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Welcome to another edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. My name is Cam Edwards. I am so glad you're with us on the program. This is actually like the third time is the charm. You have you don't know this, but I've started and stopped and started and stopped and forgot about other interviews that I was doing. And yeah, it's all right, though. We're good to go. And I'm glad that you're with us. Uh, coming up on today's program, we're going to be talking about a new study from the uh, University of California, Davis. This is the anti-gun outfit funded by the state of California. Uh, their latest research, quote-unquote, I think you and other uh, gun owners are going to get a kick out of this. But uh, before we get to that story, with the political pressure of the left and the woke mob that is the Democrat Party these days, our society is in danger of becoming controlled by the cancel culture release. I mean, since when have the founders of the Constitution or the creators of the American flag or figures like Dr. Seuss become anti-American? There's never been a better time in our nation's history to stand up against this woke mob and fight back. And you can do just that with its exclusive offer that I'm giving to my listeners and viewers right now. It's your chance to win a signed picture of President Donald Trump himself. That's right. And not only will we be taking a stand against the radical left, you'll be entering to win a piece of history. All you have to do is text the word TRUMP to 55404 today to enter. That's T-R-U-M-P to 55404. And you can join the millions of Americans standing up for President Trump and canceling the radical left once and for all. Paid for by the National Republican Senatorial Committee. All right, so let's talk about this study, shall we? Here's the headline. I love this. Many firearm buyers and sellers do not comply with assault weapon bans. <laughs> Say what? I'm shocked. I'm I, 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 I'm gobsmacked. I mean, this is... Actually, I'm not shocked at all. In fact, I, I... Yeah, this is... Yeah, we've known this. I mean, all you have to do, go back to New York, 2013, the passage of the SAFE Act. Uh, one of the provisions of the SAFE Act required that all owners of so-called assault weapons had to register them with the state of, Cal or the state of New York. It's estimated about 10% of uh, those owners complied. There was also a provision in the SAFE Act that required all handgun owners to re-register their handguns with the state of New York. Compliance was so low that the state actually kicked the deadline back a year. And then uh, when that deadline was approaching and the compliance rates were still really low, the city basically just decided to stop talking about it. I'm sure that they're still enforcing the law on a piece-by-piece -piece basis. I think they've run across somebody who has not re-registered their pistol. But they didn't want to talk about it because they didn't want to highlight the fact that compliance rates were so low. Now, in this particular study, the uh, anti-gun researchers took a look at what happened in Massachusetts. Back in 2016, Attorney General Maura Healey suddenly uh, decided, and really out of the blue, announced that the state's ban on quote-unquote assault weapons had been wrongly interpreted the entire time that it had been on the books. And it did not just ban specific models of firearms by name. Uh, it, nor did it ban, uh, quote unquote, copycats, guns that, uh, you know, were, were basically mirror images of the guns that were banned, but that the copycat language actually meant that any gun that operated like these banned firearms were also banned themselves. In essence, a ban on the vast majority of semi-automatic rifles in the state of Massachusetts. So the researchers uh, decided to see what happened after that after that ban was announced, right? And what they found is that within five days of the Massachusetts enforcement notice announcement, assault rifle sales, quote unquote, increased by five hundred and sixty percent. But they say they were sixty four to sixty six percent lower in two thousand seventeen 
than in comparable earlier periods. Now, here's the thing. In 2017, all these guns were banned. So the, the sale should not have been 64% lower. It should have been zero, <laughs> right? Uh, and the study uh, notes that, uh, quote, um, many banned weapons continue to be sold. In Massachusetts, they write, similar to laws in Washington and Colorado, compliance from gun dealers and manufacturers is voluntary with no recourse from law enforcement officials with respect to prohibited weapons, which is something, by the way, that the researchers want to change, right? Kenneth Wilbur, professor of marketing and analytics at the Rady School, a co-author of this study, says, quote, our research suggests that new firearm restrictions require enforcement to gain full compliance. If the market complied fully with the enforcement notice, then assault rifle sales should not have been or should have been zero in 2017. The data clearly show that not all firearm sellers and buyers complied with firearm restrictions. In fact, they directly reported their own noncompliance to the state government. Well, that is an issue, isn't it? But here's another issue. How do you enforce a wildly unpopular law? How, how do you do it? How do you enforce a law in which you've got hundreds of thousands of people who are not in compliance? Who've just said no. How do you do it? Again, on a piecemeal basis is how you do it, right? But that means, again, that primarily you are going to be uh, enforcing this law in low-income neighborhoods, high-crime neighborhoods. Um, you're not going to be applying this law equally, right? So there is going to be a, a disproportionate impact on those lower-income communities, which, again, anti-democrats might not care about. But uh, generally speaking, when you are supposed to be the party of equality and equity and all that jazz, you would want the law to be enforced equally as well, right? Yeah. Uh, they also say that, quote, another important takeaway for the Massachusetts law, which was announced by the state's attorney general seemingly without warning nor debate, was how it immediately prompted a spike in the sales of the very guns it outlawed. <laughs> Again, this should not be a surprise to anybody. A government official comes out randomly, I think it was on a Tuesday morning, and says, uh, um, by the way, uh, uh, from here on out, uh, these guns can't be sold. What do you think is going to happen? Yeah, there's going to be a run on those guns. When you tell somebody you can't have this, what, what's, what's the automatic reaction? Well, I want it, right? I don't care if you're talking about an AR-15 or a cookie after dinner. No, you can't have it. Well, I just want it more. And that same dynamic is at work here when we're told, no, you can't exercise your segment rights. No, you can't buy that commonly owned firearm. Well, now I really want one. The researchers say, uh, quote, the Massachusetts enforcement notice was seen as a surprise. Our research suggests that if a politician or a regulatory body wants to restrict weapons, they should design both their policy changes and their communications about their policy changes very carefully. How many, how many, how, how many tax dollars were wasted on that? <laughs> I mean, seriously? Uh, uh, our research suggests if you want to ban guns, you should uh, do it very carefully. All right. Thanks, Einstein. Really appreciate that. God bless. Can't believe this is state-funded research here. Uh, and uh, Wilbur added, quote, we see a direct correspondence in increased gun sales following mass shootings. Most of that, he says, is probably driven by purchaser concern about new weapons restrictions. In other words, 
people like Wilbur are going to call for the uh, guns that were used in this crime to now be banned, right? Which, again, promised people to go out and buy these guns before people like Wilbur can try to ban them. But Wilbur goes even further. And again, I think this gets back to the anti-gun research that's being done here by UC Davis. It's not that they're doing research into gun violence. They're doing research that is designed to promote an anti-gun agenda. Because listen to this quote. Manufacturers both benefit from those concerns and actively promote those concerns. Really? Really, Professor? Because I'd love to see some evidence of that, that gun manufacturers promote concerns that your guns are going to be taken away. So you better go and buy them now. Because I've heard, listen, I've heard Second Amendment activists say that. I've heard plenty of gun owners say that. I have never... And I, I maybe I'm just missing out. I don't remember, but I cannot recall ever hearing any gunmaker come out and say, uh, "You better buy my gun today because you're going to ban it tomorrow." I haven't heard it. But this does seem like the sort of anti-gun propaganda that you would get from anti-gun researchers, doesn't it? Uh, Wilbur also says that quote policymakers also need to be proactive in communicating their message on the topic clearly to constituents. Well, again. So you need to be clear when you're banning guns. You need to think carefully about how you're going to ban guns. Like, that's the big takeaway from this, uh, th this, this research, this study, because people will not comply, generally speaking, with your bans. Seems to me like that's the important takeaway. What is the benefit of enacting a sweeping gun ban and imposing criminal penalties on otherwise legal law-abiding citizens? What is the benefit to doing that if the compliance rates are low, if the enforcement is incredibly difficult? Again, unless you're, how do you enforce that gun ban? How do you enforce that gun ban? Wilbur doesn't say. You're supposed to go door to door, ask people, can we come in your house? Can we look to see if you've got any of those guns that we banned? No. Again, this study dances right around the issues, the fundamental flaws, forget the constitutionality or the unconstitutionality of these uh, uh, regulations and laws. Let's just talk about how to actually implement them, how to actually enforce a ban like this. And again, these researchers, these researchers cannot offer any specifics because how do you do it? Again, unless you are prepared to institute some door-to-door -door confiscation scheme or some Mr. and Mrs. America, turn them all in. And if we catch you with one after we've told you to turn them all in, it's 10 years in prison. Enforcement, by the way, that I, I think would, again, be met with a lot of noncompliance, would certainly be met with lawsuits because we're also dealing, again, with a, potentially, a constitutionally protected right. So uh, th this whole... This whole study to me is just a profile in why gun control is a failed ideology that even when it's put on the books doesn't do anything to make us safer and in fact only turns people into criminals on paper for failing to comply with these unconstitutional infringements on their right to keep and bear arms. By the way, uh, this study showing the you know massive noncompliance in uh, California, or excuse me, in Massachusetts, a uh, uh, sweeping ban on so-called assault weapons, follows a similar study showing that Massachusetts's restrictive gun control laws did not actually do anything to reduce violent crime. Mm -hmm. So 
I, I, I mean, listen, you know, for now that didn't come from UC Davis. That was from a different group of researchers. But uh, I got to say, so far, what we're seeing here is that uh, gun control laws in places like Massachusetts don't make us any safer and uh, aren't complied with even by otherwise law abiding citizens, much less the violent criminals themselves. All right, let's turn our attention to today's Armed Citizen story, our good deed of the day, and our recidivist report, which comes to us from Atlanta, Georgia. WSB reporting on the man accused of shooting an Atlanta police officer. They say that he would still be in jail if his plea deal had been handled differently. Yeah, that's a that's a pretty common story here on Barry and Arms Cam and Company, isn't it? 22-year-old Christian Eppinger is the man accused of uh, shooting the uh, police officer in Atlanta, Georgia. This was on Monday. Um, the uh, a police officer attempted to arrest Eppinger on an armed robbery charge at the Colonial Square Apartments. Uh, authorities say that Eppinger pulled a gun and uh, fired multiple shots uh, at uh, David Rogers, the uh, Atlanta police officer. Uh, he is accused of firing at a second officer as well. Eppinger was taken into custody. Rogers was hit four times in the shoulder, once in the knee, a sixth time in the back of his head. He is alive. He is recovering from his injuries at Grady Memorial Hospital. And uh, Channel 2 WSB in Atlanta spoke with Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis uh, yesterday about Eppinger's record. In 2016, so what, five and a half years ago now, when Eppinger was 16 years old, he was accused of pointing a gun in the face of a mother who had her small child with her. This was during a carjacking. And then he crashed her car, allegedly, as he fled from police. He was charged as an adult, had a laundry list of criminal charges against him. But he was allowed to plead down to reduce charges as a first offender uh, in a deal that netted him uh, a a five-year prison sentence plus probation. Plus probation. Uh, Fannie Willis says that the uh, system failed in this case. Um, She said that uh, one charge alone in the indictment, uh, armed robbery, would have resulted in a mandatory 10-year sentence had it not been pled down to robbery. The DA says he would still be in jail. He would have had to do nine years of the 10. Um, Now, she also went on to say that under the circumstances at the time, she felt like the deal was reasonable for somebody who was so young. She said the victim was in full agreement. Uh, She said, in fact, if you read the transcripts, her testimony during that hearing is quite moving. But she said that uh, she is instituting some changes in her office that she believes will specifically address young offenders like Epiger was back in 2016. She said, I think of the uh, if he if this office had come through the office today, uh, he probably would not have been sentenced the way he was back in 2016. So, again, could have done 10 years. Instead, got five, was released from prison. Uh, in May of 2021, to begin his term of probation, and here we are less than a year later, and uh, Epiger now facing uh, attempted murder charges, charges that uh, will most likely put him behind bars for a significant period of time. But all this could have been avoided had the criminal justice system taken him seriously six years ago. Now, today's armed citizen story. This is an unusual one. Diderod uh, race coming up here, and so you've got a lot of racers who are uh, getting their dogs out. They're 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 practicing. They're going on some you know speed runs. 
Well, it's a scary moment for uh, a one uh, Iditarod racer who was attacked by a moose. Uh, Bridget Watkins said uh, on Facebook on Friday that the moose would not leave uh, and that the ordeal stopped only after she called friends for help. One showed up with a rifle and ended up killing the moose. Uh, She said, uh, this has been the most horrific past 24 hours of my life. Um, that she said that the day after the attack. Now she says the dogs are recovering. She's back training with others. She said, this is not what I was planning for. Uh, but my dogs and I, she said, have trained so hard for this race that, uh, we're, we're, when I walk back out to my dog yard and I have 12 perfectly healthy dogs out of the 16 and they look at me and they all they want to do is run. She said, how can I tell them? No, that would be selfish of me. So Watkins was on a 52 mile training run. Uh, and the moose charges her. Now, she's got a handgun with her. She's got a three eighty, And she said, I emptied my gun into him, but he never stopped. She said, I ran for my life. I prayed I was fast enough to not be killed in that moment. He then trampled the team, and then he turned for us. So she had a friend who was riding on a snowmobile behind her. She's able to take refuge next to the snowmobile. She said the, the moose stopped its charge about two feet from the snowmobile. She managed to cut free six dogs uh, that were tied to the machine. But then she said the moose went back to her sled. And started like just moose stopping the dogs that were still tethered to it for over an hour uh, before her friend got there. One showed up again with a rifle, uh, one shot, killed the moose. Uh, Watkins said that, uh, you know, she does normally have a gun with her, but she said that, quote, no musher would ever travel with a rifle or a large caliber gun. I'm not sure why. She said instead preferring to scare off animals with a flare gun. She said with all the jostling to the sled, uh, the larger guns could easily go off. Sure. By the anyway, she says people have a lot of negative comments about what I should or should not have been doing. She said, but they're not the people on the back of the sled. She says, it's not that I wasn't prepared. I wasn't prepared to kill a moose. That's correct. She said, it's not my intention to go around in February and hunt and kill an animal. This is like a worst case scenario to fit in my life. But now that she's been a part of this worst-case scenario and survived, thanks to uh, the timely arrival of her friend, uh, she says that she has actually upgraded to a larger caliber firearm. She said it would be asinine to go back out there on the same trail, the same place, and not have a gun where I can't truly put down an animal if I have to. That sounds reasonable and rational to me, and I'm glad that she is uh, upgrading her uh, firepower, hopefully to uh, be able to deal with a moose. I wish her and her team the uh, very best of luck in the upcoming I Did a Rod. Finally today, our good deed of the day from the tiny town of Honaker, Virginia, which is in southwestern Virginia, the redbud capital of the world, according to the uh, Honaker Chamber of Commerce of the big redbud festival. Uh, did I say redwood? Redbud festival every year there in uh, Honaker, Virginia. Uh, but it was a early morning house fire. Uh, that actually uh, prompted headlines in Honaker the other day. Uh, and thankfully, uh, one of Honaker's finest in the right place at the right time, able to do the right thing to save the life of an officer, officer or an uh, elderly resident, Officer Noah Ball, uh, responded to a, a call about a house fire just before 7 o'clock Tuesday morning, found a mobile home engulfed in flames, but also heard the resident, or at least a resident of that mobile home, inside yelling for help. Noah Ball entered the home. Even though it was filled with smoke and fire, discovered the uh, resident trapped on the couch. Officer Ball able to evacuate the resident to safety. Uh, he was then transported to the local hospital for treatment of serious burns. It appears as if Officer...
It's going to be okay. We uh, wish that resident a, a speedy recovery. But again, in the right place, at the right time, willing and able to do the right thing to save the life of another. Officer Noah Ball in uh, Hanukkah, Virginia, we thank you for your very good deed. And we thank you for being a part of this edition of Bearing Arms Cam and Company. As always, we love having you here. We hope that uh, you head to the website, bearingarms.com, throughout the day for even more Second Amendment news and information that you need to know about. If you like what you see, you can always become a VIP subscriber or maybe even a VIP gold subscriber. And that way you'll get access not just to Bearing Arms, but exclusive content from Town Hall, Twitchy, PJ Media, Hot Air, Red State and all of the other uh, great websites, part of the Town Hall Media family. Uh, you can do that just again by going to barrenarms.com slash subscribe. Use the promo code GUNRIGHTS and you can get a significant savings on your VIP membership. Uh, and you will get exclusive commentary, analysis, and more. It's our way of saying thank you for showing support for the independent pro-Second Amendment journalism that we're doing here at Barrion Arms. And we'll be back tomorrow with another edition of Barrion Arms Cam and Company. Until then, be well, be safe, and be free. 